This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them, one from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to our show, Coast to Coast. This is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. And Bob? And I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Well, uh, we're uh, during 2007, uh, we're going to be going beyond the coast a little bit more than we have in the past year and uh, looking at issues on a more global basis. Uh, we're going to be reaching out to countries around the globe, and today we're going to start by uh, speaking to several attorneys to get their take on international employment law. Well, Bob, international employment law has many different branches, and today we're going to be breaking down and discussing the role employment issues play in international business transactions, from workplace and age discrimination and harassment to international counseling and litigation, and Sarbanes-Oxley, our guests today, will provide us with some significant insight on these issues. As today's program proceeds, we will be joined by several guests from several different locations around the globe. We'll hear from an attorney located here in the United States, as well as employment law practitioners in the U.K., Germany, and France. Joining us today first is attorney Nicholas Cannon. Uh, Nick is a partner in the law firm of uh, Conan Wood Scheidemantel. Is that right, Nick? You got it right, yes. And he's been instrumental in arranging for our international guests to participate in today's show. Nick is based in Los Angeles, but litigates employment and business disputes throughout the United States and internationally, primarily representing and counseling corporations and executive. He's currently the chair of the International Law Section of the Los Angeles County Bar Association. He also serves on the Judicial Elections Evaluation Commission of the L.A. Bar Association, and that's the committee that's responsible for evaluating and rating the candidates for judicial office in Los Angeles. And he was a delegate to Asia uh, earlier this year to meet with uh, Asian business leaders and attorneys and government officials. Welcome to the show, Nick. Pleasure to be here. Let's talk a little bit about your involvement with international employment law. Can you kind of give us an overview and explain what's involved? Sure. Um, international employment law is um, uh, has a variety of aspects to it. It, it. There's not a particular body of law that is called the international employment law body of law that you go to when you have a, an international uh, employment issue or an executive who is uh, uh, floating around in the international environment. But rather, it's uh, it, it's comprised of a lot of different uh, aspects. For example. You have to deal with transborder disputes and counseling. I'll give you an example of a case that uh, that I had. There was an executive in uh, Hong Kong who was approached uh, by a uh, Los Angeles uh, uh, entertainment uh, company, came to Los Angeles to interview for a job that was going to be based in Rome, uh, working for an English company under an English employment agreement that had an English choice of law provision. She ultimately accepted the job, went to Rome, and was sexually harassed by her uh, superior, uh, came back to Los Angeles, and, and proceeded to file a lawsuit in the Los Angeles County Superior Court. Obviously, there's all sorts of jurisdictional issues and complexity issues and really understanding what laws apply 
from a strategic point of view in deciding uh, what is the best uh, course of action in representing the client in a dispute like that. So those types of transborder disputes uh, and counseling issues are, uh, are a significant component in this area. Also related to that is working with uh, overseas practitioners in different jurisdictions with different languages, different cultures, different legal systems uh, is always a, uh, a challenging aspect uh, of being involved in international employment law issues. And then understanding the, uh, the implications of the different uh, laws and, and how to conduct business and affairs in the foreign venues um, is, a, is an important uh, component, as well as representing domestically foreign businesses and individuals in, in domestic disputes. So uh, there's many, uh, many sides to uh, uh, what we call international employment law. Is this a dispute-based uh, practice for you, or are you also involved in the, in the transactional sense of negotiating employment agreements on, if we, you know, on an international basis, uh, immigration issues at all, uh, those kinds well, of Both things? aspects. I, I do not do immigration issues. That's kind of a specialized area. But, uh, and as is typically the case in, uh, in the employment arena here in the United States, it's very litigation-driven. So much of the issues that I deal with come up in the litigation context. But there are, uh, in, the, in the employment arena, uh, there's a lot of counseling issues that one has to deal with as well. For example, some of your uh, European guests that you'll have on in a little bit will, uh, could tell you about uh, codes of conduct that exist uh, overseas and how does one go about taking an employee handbook if you're a corporation and make sure if you try to export the policies and procedures in that employee handbook that you're you are complying with the requirements uh, in Germany for example or in France uh, there's all sorts of complexity so one of the things you you learn very uh, early on in this area is that uh, you really have to adapt uh, to a variety of laws that may seem counterintuitive uh, uh, based upon what you're used to here in the United States what's it like trying to deal with attorneys from overseas well, um, surprisingly, for the most part, it's, uh, it's usually uh, pretty easy. The people who are uh, in the international employment law area uh, tend to be uh, familiar uh, with uh, how things, how the laws uh, operate here in the United States, at least in a general sense. Um, they have a good comparative sense of uh, the legal uh, environment in which businesses and uh, individuals have to operate here in the United States even though oftentimes they're trained under a different legal system, a, a much more statutory-based system than, we, than the common law system we have here, and they don't have things like juries uh, and the like, and there's a lot more administrative uh, components to, uh, to the employment law area overseas. They have a good understanding uh, if they're in this area, and so it, it tends to be relatively easy. The, the other thing that's always a challenge is obviously language uh, barriers and cultural uh, issues. Um, I happen to have an advantage because uh, English is the, the uh, language of, uh, of business, and it makes it easier uh, for me. Generally, the overseas practitioners are going to have to be fairly well-versed in English in order to uh, deal with uh, certainly a lot of the, the American uh, legal problems. Okay. How does a domestic uh, employment lawyer uh, expand its horizons internationally? Now, how, does an, how does an employment lawyer get into doing these international, this international work? And, and as a follow-up to that question before you answer it, the other one that I wanted to ask was, where do you go to get the education to do this? And where would a law student or a lawyer go to learn how to practice this kind of law? 
Sure, uh, absolutely. Well, let me give you a little bit of uh, a background on my experience. I, I started working uh, at a uh, uh, large uh, New York-based law firm, Proskauer Rose, um, here in their Century City office, and in connection with uh, with the practice there, because they have uh, uh, a, a large New York-based uh, office, uh, they had a lot of uh, international disputes. So I, I kind of fortuitously uh, fell into uh, dealing with a lot of uh, international issues where we were representing uh, foreign corporations uh, uh, around the world and, and uh, particularly in, uh, in disputes that they had here in Los Angeles. But if someone is, uh, is wanting to get involved in this area, my suggestion would be uh, I'm the chair of the international law section for the L.A. County Bar Association. Uh, my suggestion would be to get involved in uh, sections uh, like the international law section we put on symposiums. In fact, last year we had a symposium on international employment law issues uh, where we brought in foreign practitioners from around the world to speak on a variety of employment law uh, issues, cutting-edge topics uh, in this area. The ABA also puts on uh, a lot of seminars and symposiums uh, as educational, you know, events. Um, and then, uh, you know, obviously, if you are f- fresh out of uh, law school and you uh, this is an area that you really want to get into, uh, it certainly helps to target uh, firms that have an international presence. Uh, Baker McKenzie is uh, is commonly known as uh, spread throughout the world, but in today's environments of mergers uh, among uh, law firms and, and creating mega law firms, uh, that's one uh, way that uh, young practitioners can. Uh, can try to get into this area. It's interesting you say that because it, what, something that distinguishes uh, you in this area is that you are a boutique firm. You're what a three-lawyer firm, as I understand it. With three partners, and and we have about uh, uh, roughly ten attorneys uh, who work with us. Yes, but we are a, a smaller boutique uh, boutique firm. Um, what what I have found is that um, through the relationships that I've developed with practitioners uh, overseas. Um, and relationships that I have with uh, clients as well, and particularly with the technology that exists uh, today, uh, there's no reason why uh, smaller firms uh, can't be just as effective uh, and compete uh, in the international arena as with the uh, the larger firms. For someone looking to break into the area, though, um, certainly I, I would say the larger firms uh, or going with a smaller firm that does a significant amount of international work uh, is an important uh, thing for someone to do. Well, right now we're going to bring in Ramyar Mogadashi, who's coming from Thailand. Uh, Mr. Mogadashi is a dual-qualified lawyer. He's uh, a U.S. attorney and a U.K. solicitor, soliciting, or specializing, rather, in international employment law since 1991. Ramyar- soliciting, too, actually, yeah. Right. <laughs> Ramyar has written numerous articles on international employment law issues and has lectured on related topics in the U.K., United States, South Africa, and Austria. He's also an accredited mediator and speaks fluent French, Italian, and Farsi. He divides his time between two offices of his law firm, Mogadassi and Associates, in London and New York. Welcome to the show, Ramyar. Hi there. Thank uh, you. Ramir, let me ask you, uh, interesting to me to see that you're also an accredited mediator because, of course, em- employment litigation in the United States uh, is characterized, I think, by, by certainly an increase in the use of mediation. Uh, is that the case internationally? What's the role of mediation in international employment litigation? Um, well, internationally, of course, the, um, 
the major jurisdiction in which I practice other than New York is, is the UK. And in the UK, it is almost mandated that you try to resolve um, an employment case like any other case before you bring it to litigation. Uh, one of the reasons is that um, in high court in England, which is not typically where you would litigate an employment case, but generally in high court, the loser pays the fees of the winner. So it's very much encouraged that uh, the parties mediate or otherwise resolve the issue before resorting to litigation. Um, that's very much uh, the case in, in employment as well as other, other areas of practice. Do you see any effect of some of the rules that the United States has adopted in employment areas, um, including those in Sarbanes-Oxley that affect in the States? Do they have any impact on firms and businesses internationally? Oh, definitely. In the, in the employment arena, the whistleblower uh, provisions have two types of um, effect internationally. One is, one is a civil uh, liability effect, and the other is criminal. Um, in the area of civil liability, there have been recent decisions um, limiting the scope of Sarbanes-Oxley abroad. I think the issue still needs to be decided um, uh, once and for all as to whether or not the civil liability provisions apply extraterritorially. However, um, Sarbanes-Oxley specifically provides for extraterritorial application of its criminal provisions. Um, so. Yes, with regard to whistleblower protection, it does apply extraterritorially, and it's something that has come up time and again uh, with regard to especially American employers abroad, especially in Europe and uh, in Asia. I mean, what, are, what are the most common issues that you confront or deal with in your practice? Um, we deal with the predominant um, area of practice for us internationally is, is serving the needs of expatriate individuals and their employers so that um, when individuals move abroad from the states, we would come in and, and draft their employment agreements, which are mandated, for example, by by UK law, as opposed to uh, most jurisdictions in the US, which don't require them. We would handle the initial stages of the contract drafting, see it through until signature, obviously. And if issues arise with regard to employees, um, we would represent uh, the company um, generally uh, in, in dealing with those issues, or the individual, if that's the uh, if that's what we decide to do. So, have you experienced much in, uh, with age discrimination or sexual harassment? Um, age discrimination has just come into force in the UK as of last April. Um, it's 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 a very nascent uh, type of uh, of area. I don't think there have been too many. Um, too many problems with it in terms of, of employers not understanding it. I think, um, for good or for bad, the American example has been very clear. Uh, the UK legislation is very much modeled after the, the ADEA in the States. Um, we haven't been very involved in age discrimination cases yet, but I think it's, been, it's an area, as it was in the States, um, that will be very for lack of a better word, fruitful in litigation in the near future. However, as, it, as it's only recent, as of April, um, not much has come about yet. Uh, sexual harassment, I mean, we, we also deal with a lot of clients' needs throughout Europe, and I think sexual harassment is an area where, as an American lawyer, I find very difficult um, understanding the, the, the local approaches to the laws. The laws are there. Certainly in the U.K., they are on the books in, in Europe as well, as far as I, I know. 
Um, in practice, however, because of the cultural um, differences, um, we had a case in, in Italy a while back where I think the, the, the facts in the United States would have, would have um, been very damaging to the employer we were representing. However, in Italy, um, it was a multi-jurisdictional issue, and, and, and the Italian aspect of it, according to our Italian council, was, was, was not at all um, a liability to our, uh, to our employer client. And I think um, that, is probably, that is probably because of the cultural perspective. Things that are accepted um, in other jurisdictions perhaps wouldn't be accepted in most U.S. jurisdictions. Well, as you lecture and practice around the world, do you see that companies and businesses are pretty much on the same page across the world as far as employment law goes? Um, no, uh, <laughs> unfortunately not. I, I think um, I think one of my most uh, shocking experiences was was when I was lecturing in South Africa some years ago, and um, I was lecturing with some English um, colleagues and um, South African colleagues, and. Um, I had to get up there and say, well, basically, in the United States, uh, we have uh, no employee protection. We're an employment at will jurisdiction. And I basically got a, a laugh out of the audience of about 180 lawyers because we're probably the only um, Western, Western um, country which does not have extensive employer juris, uh, um, protection. Um, so when I speak on behalf of um, my fellow American lawyers, I find it quite difficult to um, well, compete with, with, with other colleagues. When I speak on behalf of my U.K. colleagues, obviously uh, in the U.K. we have extensive protection, which is relatively recent um, um, compared to other European countries. It's, it's, it was mandated by... By, by Brussels, by and large, and we now have protection against unfair dismissal, which obviously we don't in the States, and we also have protection against discrimination. Um, much of the discrimination laws were modeled after the U.S. laws, but the unfair dismissal laws are, 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 very, are very strictly applied and, um, and uh, in uniformity with other countries. I think uh, you know, the, the U.K. Has, has come a long way recently. Well, we're going to take a short break, but before we do that, we would like to thank uh, Ramyar Mogadasi for joining us. Uh, he's going to be leaving us now, and when we come back uh, after the break, we're going to be joined by uh, attorneys from Germany and France. Uh, Ramyar, thank you very much for your time and for speaking with us today. Thank you all. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. We'll be back after this. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. 
If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, and with me is Bob Ambrosi. That's right. Thanks for joining us. We uh, still have with us uh, Attorney Nick Conan from Conan Wood Scheidemantel in Los Angeles. And uh, we have another guest joining us, Craig. That's right, Bob. Dr. Gerland Wieskirchen, if I pronounced that correctly, is a partner in uh, and a specialist lawyer in employment and labor law at the firm CMS Heisch Siegel. Did I say that right, Dr. Wieskirchen? Yeah, that sounds absolutely right. Hi, everybody. Uh, Gerland advises uh, German and foreign multinational companies on all areas of individual and collective employment law, in particular on questions of restructuring, outsourcing, privatizations, transactions, and personnel adjustment measures. She advises in negotiations and negotiates collective bargaining agreements and social plans. She's a member of the American Employment Law Council, the German-American Bar Association, and in the International Association of Labor and Employment Lawyers Work Law Network. Well, welcome again to the show, Gerland. Yes, tell us a little bit about your practice uh, in international employment law. Um, I have started a couple of years ago, uh, seeing that there is a chance that you know globalization also takes its toll with regard to labor and employment law, and I think that works in in several ways. First of all, you have so many multinationals uh, that are more interested in getting you know the big picture, and they say they want to. Uh, reduce uh, work staff or they want to implement an employment policy worldwide. So they need um, advice from one hand, but probably covering several jurisdictions. So I often serve as the representative for Europe and not only for Germany and try to help um, multinationals uh, with their uh, specific business goals. And the other thing that comes more on my desk are cross-border issues. Like uh, if you want to move a company from one country to another, or if you want to set up, say, uh, a whistleblower channel, we might come back to that worldwide. That is a cross-border issue. And that, also, that uh, entails a lot of labor and employment law issues. Gerland, you studied law at the University of Bonn, at the University de la Sainte in Switzerland, and at Georgetown University in the United States. Can you give us a little bit about your experiences uh, educationally? Were they the different? Were they the same? How, how do you compare them? 
You mean when you go to the U.S. university compared to a German one? Oh, you're much better off. Uh, you're much better off going to a U.S. Uh, university. Um, the reason for that is that you typically have to pay a tuition fee, while at least in Germany, university is free, and that is reflected in all the resources you have. So uh, I enjoyed very much my stay at Georgetown University. Now, you participated earlier this year in a employ international employment law symposium that, that our other guest, Nick Conan, who's on the line with us, helped uh, uh, organize. Uh, what was your role in that, and what, what topics did you address there? Um, well, we had several issues, one of which was what are the differences with regard to termination uh, in Asia, Europe, and the U.S.? Uh, we had issues with regard to restrictive covenants without a difference worldwide, um, mass dismissals, and, uh, of course, and that's a specific feature of Europe, I think, um, co-determination rights of employees. So we tried to cover a lot of um, different issues, but it was fun and very interesting, I think. By mass dis dismissal, you mean like a, a reduction in force here, a, a layoff? A, a, a yeah, large for example, of yeah. What, what do you have to do, how long that takes uh, to get it done, what do you have, what preconditions you have to meet before you can do it. And, um, well, being one of the European uh, employment lawyers, you never have speech in that regard. Uh, it's, it's always a little bit more complicated than in the U.S., well, one thing, Bob and Craig, on uh, on the International Employment Law Symposium, in case your uh, listeners would be interested in uh, in hearing the symposium, which is, was about eight hours of material, they can actually go to the Los Angeles County Bar Association website, and it was podcasted, and they can actually download uh, Gerlin and the other panelists who uh, who spoke at that, as well as the breakout groups uh, that we had for geographical area. Is that uh, I think that's lacba.org, possibly. That's right. Yep. Okay. What about uh, labor labor management issues on an international basis? Is is that something you work with, or, or is there uh, international collective bargaining uh, matters that come up in this area? Well, one thing on the in the union area, that I think you find uh, uh, somewhat different here in the United States versus over in, in uh, many of the European countries is the the unions in the European countries are much more. Uh, tied into the legal system, and actually their responsibilities with respect to both represented employees and non-represented employees is much greater. So, for example, uh, if in uh, if we had a, a speaker from Spain who uh, uh, alerted us that uh, uh, union is actually uh, unionization is actually written into their constitution, so that the role for a union is not only to provide some representation for their represented individuals, but if an employee has a problem and they need to get a lawyer, they actually go to the union, even if they're not a part of the union, and the union facilitates uh, getting some representation for them. Uh, the, the, the concept of contingency fees is, is less well-established over in Europe than it is here in the United States, but there are vehicles like that for people who can't afford attorneys to uh, get representation. Mm. And let me add something. In Europe, we have a second layer of employees' representation, what is typically called Works Council. And this is an employee representation body that works on-site in the factory of companies. And that is established everywhere in the EU. And this body not only represents organized employees, but 
virtually everybody, as you said. So, um, and these are the people who would decide on day-to-day -day matters. So, in this regard, if you would call Works Council also as a different, uh, different employee representation body, they have a much higher in, say in, in business matters than in the U.S. And you can't avoid them. So are, are companies able, realistically, to adopt uh, employment policies on a global basis? For Is a global company able to have a, a single set of, of standards, or does it need to tailor and moderate its standards for each country in which it does business? Nick, let me ask you that. Yeah, you know, there, there is uh, no one-size-fits-all. You really do need, if you're doing business on an international level, you really do need to be aware and sensitive and get good practitioners in the jurisdictions where you're operating uh, to make sure that you're in full compliance with the legal obligations. And uh, uh, one of the big mistakes that companies make, and it's not only on an international basis, but it's even here in the United States, and California tends to be a very pro-employee state, so a lot of companies will come into California to do business and not realize that when the final paycheck needs to be paid, it needs to be paid immediately, for example. Otherwise, there's waiting time penalties that attach. And those types of problems are magnified even more when you're, when you're talking about uh, overseas uh, obligations that you've got to comply with. Gerland, what do you see as uh, differences in health benefits, uh, other types of benefits like vacation, sick time, uh, health insurance and so forth is uh, across the international law? Well, um, first of all, when it gets to health insurance or social security in general, it's very much, it's very different uh, according to jurisdiction or country. So there are uh, many European countries have a much greater degree of social welfare, so the social security system is state-run. So, for example, instead of having 401k plans, uh, you would have a state-run company pension, uh, a state-run pension plan. Uh, so companies would seldom have a company pension plan, or at least to a smaller degree. Um, the same applies to health insurance. So it's not that much privatized than it is in the uh, U.S. When we talk about vacation, I know the the Americans envy us Europeans. We have a mandatory European law that provides for four weeks of vacation, but most of the countries in Europe have even six weeks of vacation. I understand that uh, uh, we uh, need to let you go, Gerland, uh, and uh, we really appreciate your having taken the time to participate in our program today, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Our producers now tell us that we've got Patrick Thibar on line with us. He's the head of Franklin's Labor and Employment Team, which comprises nine full-time lawyers. Patrick and his team advise national and international companies and institutions on a wide variety of domestic and international employment law issues arising in the workplace. In addition to labor and, in, and employment practice, Patrick Thibar has developed substantial immigration law expertise by regularly advising American and Asian international companies on employees' transfers, including remuneration packages, to France. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Patrick, tell us uh, about your practice and your work and what you do in the area of international employment law. Well, um, I am only a, uh, a lawyer admitted to the Paris Bar, but I'm also a 
a member of the American Bar Association and uh, have been involved with the American Bar Association since, I would say, 1998. And I would probably say that thanks to the American Bar, uh, I have met um, a lot of uh, U.S. attorneys in employment law, uh, uh, having also an international practice. And so that's uh, that's generated work uh, for your firm and in your practice uh, from the United States on an international level. Uh, absolutely, um, absolutely. Uh, you know, many many lawyers in the U.S. and not only uh, big firms, uh, many lawyers, including solo practitioners, uh, may have uh, some uh, international business uh, uh, offices and. Uh, and when I think it's really a question of, of credibility, uh, when a client, a regular client of yours, asks an advice in international law, uh, clients expect from you at least to be able to recommend uh, a local lawyer who can really handle uh, the uh, the legal issue the client uh, uh, has. And, and you know. Uh, Legal issues overseas, you should also take into consideration the psychological aspect. I mean, when you have to to litigate very far from your home country, that may be a problem. And so you do need uh, um, a, um, a good quality service. Patrick, what do you see as the biggest uh, issues that companies face in the workplace in France? Well, at this point in time, um, we do have uh, some issues um, relating to uh, discrimination. That is clearly uh, one of the big issues we, we, we have. Uh, as you may know, uh, France and the other European member states uh, um, have been uh, uh, had to... Um, uh, implement the uh, European directives uh, on discrimination, and uh, it may be very, very surprising uh, to your auditors that until very recently, we had in France uh, absolutely no equivalent to your uh, EEOC. And so we had uh, the French EEOC in 2005, and they are now really starting. Um, uh, I would say a real job, uh, making investigations, reporting cases of discrimination uh, to uh, the public prosecutors. And uh, we also have more and more uh, issues regarding uh, hiring discrimination. Uh, keep in mind that in France, we also have a lot of people uh, uh, with uh, Arabic origins, and so that is really a big issue we currently have in France. Well, sexual harassment cases in, in France are, are difficult to prove, isn't that, isn't that so? Well, absolutely correct. Um, that is very uh, difficult to prove. Uh, I, I would probably say that it's, it's probably uh, a question of, uh, of culture. Um, you know, in in, in in France, uh, we consider that uh, 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 flirting is not uh, sexual harassment. We don't have this um, legal notion of hostile environment. If you want to prove a sexual harassment case in France, you must uh, prove the existence of a particular professional damage. 
if plaintiff is not in a position to demonstrate the existence of a professional damage, there will be no sexual harassment case. Do you see many issues that relate uh, to the United States laws and Sarbanes-Oxley and some of the whistleblower issues uh, being considered disloyal in Asia or in France? Is it a violation of French law? Well, uh, the answer is, is yes. Um, as you may know, um, the, the French uh, authorities were not prepared to, I would say, host the uh, SOX uh, legislation without an adaption uh, to the French, without adapting it to the French uh, context. So, a um, couple of months ago, you had a, a real, uh, I would say, uh, brainstorming between the French authorities and the SEC in particular. And at the end of the day, in December 2005, the French authorities, and in particular the French Data Protection uh, Commission, uh, adopted some guidelines regarding uh, SOX. Uh, the objective is to have some uh, uh, due process rules which protect uh, the uh, person who is the target of whistleblowing. But I would probably say that the difficulty we had, not only in France, but in Europe, more generally with socks, was that um, contrary to what happened in the U.S. where this, this act was regarded as a reform to have, uh, I would say, uh, to clean uh, some business uh, practices, uh, because of the European history uh, of forced whistleblowing during the Second World War, uh, attempts require employees to report misconduct, uh, I mean, really conflicted with European countries' history and social norms, and that's why it was very difficult. But I'm pleased to say that now we do have some uh, rules regarding uh, whistleblowing and the way an employee can report um, um, uh, I would say practices that would not be that would be in 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 that would not be in compliance uh, with with French law. Patrick, the American Bar Association, you said, was instrumental in in your helping to develop uh, some uh, clients here in the United States. What advice would you have for lawyers in the United States seeking to do the same in France? Well, I would probably say that you should probably not only focus on France, but focus uh, on uh, the uh, EU more generally. And if I had a, a practical advice, it will be, we have a, uh, a very interesting uh, thing, which is the European Employment Lawyers Association. And this is for uh, our uh, U.S. Uh, colleagues, a, a unique occasion to meet uh, around 300 employment lawyers at the same time and at the same place uh, every year. So I would probably recommend that uh, people try to, to 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 visit the website. I'm sorry, I don't have the address with me, but probably if if you uh, conduct an internet search with EELA, European Employment Lawyer Association, I'm pretty sure that you will be able to find some interesting information about this. Thank you. My pleasure.
Patrick, thank you very much for participating in today's program. We uh, are glad to have you join us from France and uh, appreciate your time and advice to us. Uh, thank you very much. It has been my pleasure. And uh, a special thanks to uh, Nick Conan for, uh, for participating in, in this uh, extended uh, broadcast today. Uh, Nick, uh, any closing thoughts uh, for our listeners on this topic of international employment law? Well, uh, I guess my closing thoughts is uh, to the extent that the listeners uh, uh, are uh, in the uh, in the business world and engaged in uh, uh, international business, um, it really is important, uh, as you can tell from a lot of the topics that were touched upon. And this is a, there there are a, a whole bunch of additional ones. Uh, it really is important to make sure that when you go into a foreign jurisdiction that you get proper uh, legal advice from uh, an employment attorney within that jurisdiction. And people such as uh, uh, Ramyar and uh, Gerland and, and Patrick are invaluable to speak to uh, before you, uh, you venture into those jurisdictions. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be likely speaking to them after you're already in there and, and probably at a, at a much greater cost to you. And just for our listeners' benefit, uh, the website that Patrick recommended is eela.org. And, uh, of course, as I mentioned earlier, Nick, more about Nick and his firm and his practice and his podcast can be found at conanwood.com, and that's C-O-N-N-O-N-W-O-O-D.com. Nick, thank you very much for participating in our program today. This has really been fascinating. We've been uh, honored to have you on the show. Enjoyed it. Thank you. And Craig, I will talk to you next week. Take care, Bob. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.